are back here at Behind the Lens for yet another week where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers, the shakers, the movie and TV makers, writers, directors, producers, uh, costumers, composers, uh, film editors, sound editors, mixers, and of course, on-air talent. Um, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens. And very excited about today's show. You know, and I just want to say, for those of you that are listening on AdrenalineRadio.com, okay, you can always go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page, watch the live stream. It's nothing thrilling. It's just me sitting here in in the booth um, with different uh, tablescapes that I like doing every week for all of you. This week, again, we have Tiny Chef. Tiny Chef is on display. Of course, the way I have anybody who's looking at the Facebook live stream on AdrenalineRadio.com, I have Tiny Chef's book out, his, his Mishing Recipe book. Um, and the page that it's turned to from my viewpoint is Tiny Chef's butt bending over his stove. Um, so <laughs> that's what I'm going to be looking at all through the show, folks. So if, you, if, you, if I start laughing, you'll know why. Uh, but... Anybody that hasn't that hasn't fo- been following Tiny Chef on Instagram or anything, you are missing out. I can't encourage it enough. Tiny Chef show um, on Instagram. Tiny Chef is the cutest thing. Between Tiny Chef and Baby Yoda and Baby Groot, if I could have all three of them in a show, I'd be so happy, so happy, and I think the whole world would too. But. Very excited about today's show. Um, we've got a great guest coming up at the midpoint of the show. Writer, director, cinematographer Andre Welsh to talk about his new film, Disrupted, uh, which comes out in limited theatrical in L.A. Well, <laughs> obviously not in sit-down in theaters in L.A., but undoubtedly some drive-ins. Uh, and five other markets uh, this count on November 11th, and then on the 17th it will be out VOD and digitally and expanding all over. Uh, very excited to talk to Andre. It's a very interesting film. Uh, but before we get to Andre, you're going to hear my exclusive interview that I did last week with writer-director Robert Port. Uh, this is his first feature, and author. Uh, acclaimed, best-selling New York Times author Richard Bausch. Uh, this the film is Recon, and we're talking about Recon today because of Veterans Day on November 11th. Uh, Recon does come out tomorrow on the 10th. This is it's based on a true military event. It is based on uh, an event in northern Italy during World War War II um, that Robert's father, uh, the Richard's father, Robert, was one of the soldiers involved in this event. This is the story of four four GIs that were stationed in Italy, and they are out on a reconnaissance mission. Uh, It's set in the winter. It takes place over the course of one day. And they meet up with an, an old Italian that 
Do you trust him? Do you not trust him? Is he working with the Germans? What's or what's going on? Uh, that Italian is played by the legendary Franco Nero, who was a young boy in Italy during World War II. Uh, so he personally experienced a lot of what we see, the ambient circumstances that we see unfold on screen. Uh, Ed Lucas is the cinematographer who does an amazing job. The cast, Alexander Ludwig, who I adore, plays Corporal Marson. And Marson is actually based on Staff Sergeant Robert Bausch. Uh, Chris Brochu, uh, Sam Keeley, uh, R.J. Featherstonebaugh, Lachlan Monroe, one of my favorite character actors. Lachlan is in this film as well. And, of course, Franco Nero and Tyler Hines. Um, it's an intense story. It's a story you go into war and you assume the worst to begin with. But then you talk about the what-ifs. And we meet these four men. And they look at the what-ifs of their life. And their actions will determine their fate. The war may not, but their individual actions might. Uh, as I found out during my interview with Robert and Richard, um, Richard was born in, in Fort Benning in Georgia. His father was stationed there. And it was, as I have since found out since our interview, the same time my grandfather was stationed there. Uh, so I love that little connection that we stumbled upon while we were talking. Uh, so, and for those of you out there, I can't recommend highly enough. They are going to re-release Richard's book, his 2008 novel, Peace, on which Recon is, is adapted. And I have actually read it. I read it when it came out back in 2008. Uh, I understand it may come out in ebook form as a tie-in to the movie. If it does... I encourage you to read it. It's an incredible, incredible book. Um, and to see it translated to the big screen through Robert's, Robert Port's keen eye is a real treat. Um, so without any further ado, take a listen to my exclusive interview with writer-director Robert Port and author Richard Bausch talking about Recon. Hi guys, how are you? Doing great, how are you? Well, I'm so excited to be talking with both of you. Great to talk with you. Richard, I love the fact that Richard was born in Fort Benning uh, during the time my grandfather was uh, stationed there. Wow, he might have known my dad. It's very, very possible. My grandfather was, uh, he was a lifer and he was at Benning uh, his entire his entire military service, but for World War One, when he was actually in Baker Company in the cab. Wow! So I I immediately gravitated towards this this film the minute I read Great. anything about it, and love it. I have to tell you both, I really love this film, and more than oh, that, thank you. I appreciate I appreciate this story. Thank you. Well, I, I ain't gonna give all that credit to Richard. We we have a mutual uh, fan club, Richard and I. But I mean, that's all Richard. That's the genius of Richard Bausch. That's why I, you know, all I had to do was pay money for it. 
he bled those pages. I, I, all I did was uh, read by the New York Times and beg my agent to bug his agent so I could option the damn thing. But uh, that's the genius of Richard Bausch. Oh, well, yeah, the film is, stands for itself. It's a great film. And uh, it doesn't matter how good the book is, if the movie maker isn't up to it. And boy, this movie maker was up to it. And, thanks, Scott. You see, we love each other. So. Truer uh, words. Richard, truer words were never spoken because, as you both well know, so many books are woefully translated to film. Correct. Um, Richard, tell, tell Deb our favorite. Tell Deb our favorite. So I, I, I basically majored in F. Scott Fitzgerald in, the, in college, and the first time I met Richard, I said, Richard, why can't they get the great Gatsby, Greek Gatsby right on film? How many movies did they make, Richard? That's about six of them. Like yeah, it's... Yeah. One worse than the next. It, 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 uh, it, the last one was particularly bad. Oh, God. There's, <laughs> don't, don't even go there, Richard. There are no words. <laughs> there, are, there are no words. I wouldn't words. watch it. Somebody who can really get into the inside a book. I mean, Robert added a couple of things that I just thought were so amazing that, uh, I mean, I can't even begin to tell you what. I, you know, all I said to him, I said, we both know the cliché. The movie's better than the book, but <laughs> uh, my God! Well, uh, for instance, uh, when the fellow is shot, mm -hmm. the sniper—he gets shot by the sniper—and they drag him in the snow. There's a zoom shot above with a trail of blood yep. left by his body. I didn't write that. It's not—you know—that's Robert making that film, seeing that novel, and seeing what it must have been like. Yeah. So yeah. Well, thank you, Richard. I mean, I mean, I'll tell you, as as a as a as a lit major and knowing about Richard to begin with, uh, and then getting to you know we're like family now. You can tell from the short end on the phone already. But we are. I am proud of the fact that I am I am the only one of my screenwriter friends, and I I have quite a few who are a lot more successful than me who work with a lot of authors who have zero relationship. I mean. Uh, you know, oh, you just get the book, you never talk mm -hmm. to the author. Don't talk to the author. That's a huge mistake. That's a huge mistake. Well, the fact that I have Richard Bausch on the other end of the line, I and mean, he also came up and his lovely wife, Lisa, came up and visited when we were filming. But the fact that I knew at midnight I could pick up the phone the night before filming and say, Richard, what do you, you know, when Ash says this line, what do you think? And he was, he was like my psychiatrist. You know, he was calm. Well, I was thinking this, oh, that's it. Now, you know, I'd go tell the actor that, and I'd sound like I was a genius, you know, so that worked out well. But I think a lot of that stuff that Richard's talking about is a, is a I grew up a kid of the, of the, you know, I was born in 67, so the movies, you know, David Lean, Bridge Over River Kwai, and John mm -hmm. Sturgis' uh, Great Escape, and The Dirty Dozen, and, uh, you know, we, we wanted to make a movie. I say we, uh, the DP and I, and the producer, Rick Dugdale, uh, you know, we wanted to make a movie that looked like that, that had all the beautiful drama and tension of Richard's. Richard's book, and that's, you know, not to get all film geeky on you, but, you know, Ed Lucas, the DP, who was incredible, he went, okay, I said, yeah, get three million bucks, I'll make a David Lean movie. Okay, no problem. And he went out and he found me, uh, it was like the coolest day. He gave me, uh, I sat there and he had about 20 different lens packages. He had found vintage lenses ranging from the 1950s to the 1970s. Mm -hmm. uh, and we set on a set, and, and he had he'd shown me what each one would look like. And we sell on, on a set of vintage anamorphic lenses from the 60s and 70s. And, uh, you know, I, that, that's what I wanted. And we got it. And they, he did a, 
You know, Ed was phenomenal in, in, in taking that vision and putting it on screen. Oh, Ed's Ed's work here, and it's funny that Richard mentioned that scene where Ash is shot and he's and drug yep. through the snow, and then you have that great overhead yep. shot of the blood on the white snow. And Ed's work, I can't tell you. I have I have about it, seventeen pages of notes as I was watching the film, and. So many of them are, it's like, it's it's particular shots. It's things that stick in your mind. You have a great eye, you and Ed both do, Robert, for knowing when to give us an ECU. Um, you sure. use them very, very judiciously. Uh, because you. you like, Thank you. and I notice you like to show them, show the guys in generally a, a mid shot so you get the group of four and five and then we get down to four so that we see all of them and yet you keep them separate so, so that I, i'm they're, so happy you said that i'm, I'm sorry finish your thought I'm, I'm really happy you brought that up because it it lets us know that they are all individuals they may be part of a unit but they're individuals and then when we get into the act the dialogue and the story of each man that we learn through their uh, combative and kindness of conversation. That's where Richard's work really takes hold. So I love this marriage, uh, this cinematic marriage here, where each one is picking, taking up, picking up a laboring oar to define the, the, this story and these men. I'm so happy you, you, you noticed that. I want to I say two things about that. Um, one is not that I hadn't literally seen every World War II movie that was possible uh, over the course of my life and in preparation for shooting this, but in prep up in Canada in the middle of nowhere in the snowstorms when everyone would go home on the weekends, Ed and I would sit there and rewatch the top 20 that were important, you know, The Bridge Over the River Kwai's and those films I mentioned. Um, we were watching When Eagles There, which is a great... Love that film. And, we had a big, we went down to the local uh, Best Buy in Canada and we, we li literally bought, you know, we need the biggest screen because we wanted to make sure, you know, to watch this correctly. And we're watching this one scene, which I remembered so vividly. I've seen that movie tons of times. And it's, it's, it has to do with when they're in the, they, they're sort of first inside the castle and they, they're at the dining room table and the Nazi officers are there. And Robert Shana was there. And we counted. And it's probably a, a 70 or 80 second shot where they don't budge off from medium. Mm -hmm. and, and I looked at them, and we could have said, went, now isn't that amazing? There's no one in the world who's doing that today. And look at how it held up. And to your point, there were several people in it, and, and then the tension was there. And we sort of said to each other, I guess, to say, why can't we do this? And he said, you can. I said, why can't we do this? He said, you can. And then, and then I think the other thing is, look, in my lifetime, Steven Spielberg is, is, for all many reasons, I mean, I just put him at the tippity, 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 tippity top. Um, and of, of filmmakers and of, of my generation, right? And um, I think if you look at Private Ryan, which again, you know, it's arguably whatever, you can pick your top three, but it's in there. The first 40 minutes are, are, are ridiculous. We all know that. But if you look at the way he shot other parts of the movie, specifically the scene with Giovanni Ribisi, it's a nighttime scene. They're, they're holed up in the church and he's telling mm -hmm. the story about his mother. Look at the way. Spielberg shoots that that film, and you 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 really again there's a there's an incredible. I mean, he's the best. There's an incredible, um, and I mean this as a compliment. Old school quality to the way he shot the rest of that film um, that that I just unabashedly kept 
going back to him trying to steal because he's it's just it's a blueprint for how to sort of do it flawlessly. Absolutely. And here, I mean, you give us, once they are sent out by Sergeant Reese, and they come to the open field. It's one thing when you're under, under cover of trees, but they come to that open field, and you give us this great establishing shot of the wide open, snow-covered field, and you go down, and in your editing, we see the feet of one man, feet of another man. It really speaks volumes and really elevates the story. You know, that's something I'm curious about, Richard. Did you work at all with Robert on the screenplay adaptation, or did you just let him adapt as he would at, to his heart's content? No, the, the way for me, it was just the whole thing was kind of was thrilling because I could see, first of all, in the script that he was he was not he was not um, toying with it. He was actually putting the words down that these men spoke and the stuff he added was brilliant. I mean, one of those things that happened when we were looking at it, we didn't laugh a lot. <laughs> we're sitting next to each other on the couch like it's a game. <laughs> Our wives are <laughs> That's your line. No, that's not. <laughs> that's great for you. Yeah, we kind of lost track of whose line was who, but when in that, it was, it was, it was Richard. But Richard's under, as usual, is being modest. I sent him every draft, no matter what, even if I, it, it, again, to quote the great William Goldman, even if I killed one of his babies, he would never say, ah, damn it. He would just give me some great notes, hey, give some thoughts, take them or leave him. So he was absolutely, he was so supportive. In addition to the beauty of Ed's cinematography, and this this goes on repeatedly, as they're going across the bridge, across that huge mm-hmm. gorge. If anybody's got vertigo, they should like cover their eyes yeah. during that scene <laughs> because it's that. so That's effective. Legit. By the way, that is a legit bridge. That is not CGI. If if, if you Rick Dugdale and I were, uh, we had scouted. We originally was going to shoot the film in Serbia. We've been all over the world. And he, when I wrote that bridge scene, he goes, you know, there's this place in Canada that has this crazy wood bridge. And I was like, what? Okay. And he and I went there. And the, I, I've got the photos. I mean, that, of the day we went there, and I went, oh, my God, that is real. There is That is not CGI. Wow. So one of the coolest things I think I've ever seen in a movie. I mean, I it, isn't going, God damn, this is in the movie made my book. This is good. It really is. And, you. you know, then we get into the third act where we have Alexander's character, Marson, and you can feel the way the camera's moving. We're getting the sense of a sniper scanning the trees, looking, looking, right. looking for their target. Then suddenly he turns, thinking that there's a, a target on his back. But then the camera then takes his POV, and it's looking, looking, looking. And you really immerse immerse the viewer in the moments that of feeling that you got a target on your back. There is somebody there. Yeah. And then you pivot. You are such an astute eye. That scene was really, really special. It was the coldest day. That snow is not augmented. It was, we were, well, so we had to take snowmobiles to get up to where we were. Uh, these, this was not, there were no paved roads. We were up a mountain. And it, it was dumping snow that day. It was freezing cold. Alexander had, uh, you know, one of the things that the actors kept saying to me over and over was, can we have gloves? And I said, they didn't have gloves. And they, and, you know, those uniforms are the real uniforms they wore. 
I don't know, again, folks like my grandfather who were in the Battle of Bulge and whatnot, I don't know how they survived just the weather, by the way, wearing those thin those thin uh, uh, jackets and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But we did that all in, I said to Alexander, because the kid was, I mean, he was unbelievable. He never complained, but he was going to go into hypothermia. And I said, I, I think the only way we can do this is we have to do this as one long continuous day. And I'll just yell stuff out to you because I just can't keep, calling cut and action, cut and action. So the, that was sort of one long 20-minute, 25-minute ordeal wow. for that guy, that guy. And then, you know, he runs from the tree. And that's all Alexander. He is a thoroughbred. That's the only way I can describe him. He's an athletic prowess. And uh, I don't know many actors that could have literally do what he did in that under those circumstances. And by the way, let me point out, there were no hot tubs standing by. This, there, were, there were no trailers. This is an independent film. We were, that's it. You had a couple of hand warmers. That's the best we had. Well, and Alexander, I have had the, the absolute joy of knowing him and, and talking with him. Oh, you have? For years. Oh, I haven't talked about oh, this okay. film. I would love to, but for years, since since he was did uh, Race to Witch Mountain years ago. Yes, yes, and going absolutely. through, he's done some serious films. He's done a faith-based film. He did Sword in the Vikings. He is perfect in this role, and the ambigu- the emotional ambiguity that he has with that he brings to Marson within himself, his internal battle that he's fighting. And Alexander yeah. has a great way of not only internalizing that, but expressing that with his face. With the way yes. he will he will hang his head, the way that he will slump his shoulders a bit, it's he really is so gifted, and is perfect oh, in this film. Again, I, so you know him. It's interesting when I don't want to give away too much about the about the um, no spoilers. <laughs> what did you say? No spoilers. No, no, no spoilers. It's just about the process. So Alexander's you know character is is. You know, you know from the log line goes through this incredible emotional journey and as much as we could in sequence because what Al's going to put himself through and what, what you know he went to that he uses cliche he went to that place and there were times where he, and this is a credit to how phenomenal an actor is I had to cut the film and take him aside and 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 say are you all right and he goes yeah but he was so emotionally after that inciting event he was such in that space I, I had him. It was a slow burn, and I would say, Alexander, if you, if I, he said it's so hard because you know he was living that character and living essentially having a moral crisis, almost a breakdown. Yeah. Um, and it, it, you know, I, I have to pull him back, and he, the guy is so good and so talented um, that he, you know, he, he, as all great actors do, it, it was hard for him to to separate the, the reality from the fiction. And he's, yeah. Can't say enough great things about him. I also have to have to compliment you on your sound design and the score because the way those are integrated. I noticed at the fifty-one minute mark where you've got Joiner who he's just had his whole breakdown of his arm is itching, he's ripping his clothes off. Is he having a mental breakdown out there? Yeah. And you start hearing this very tribal little drumbeat as he finally starts to pick up his gear and they start going. But while he's having his, his breakdown, the music, it's very kind of techno-eerie. And it and this happens in a few places. And there are moments where the wolf howl gets interwoven into things. And then other moments where your sound, you have no sound. 
It is pure yep. silence. And so there's a team out of Sweden. The music was Andres and Klaus, Andres Niska and Klaus Wall. They did the music. These guys uh, flew over here. They met with me. And, uh, you know, they were, it was like me saying, and I want to do a David Lee movie. They kept saying to me, we'll record orchestra. Because I was saying, I want to do an orchestra. They go, yeah, no problem. We can do that. We can record real orchestra. I don't want to hear that fake synthesizer. Oh, we can do that. Um, and, the, and the editor was Hawking Carlson, who's incredible. And um, they killed it. They absolutely, I mean, the sound department was, you know, the, the visual effects are Peter Matson, but that whole group out of Sweden uh, who worked together a lot. They abs absolutely just just killed. It. it was it was incredible. I mean, it was absolutely can't say enough about the amazing, amazing job that those folks did. No, they do a, an incredible job. I'm curious, Richard. How do you feel about the actors that were cast in these in the roles of these characters that you so beautifully have drawn and originally drew? Are you happy with the casting? Yeah, absolutely. Um, they, they. I mean, Chris Broke, who is, is you know, Ash, just blew me away. And, and uh, Alexander's Mark, I can't even begin to tell you how amazing. The, the whole thing, um, right down to Franco with that, uh, or right up to Franco with his portrayal of the old man. Um, it, I was just taken away by all of it. I just thought it was amazing. When you write, I'm curious, when you wrote these characters, did you ever have visions of photos of them or, or images of them in your mind? And then when Robert is sending you drafts of the script, are you envisioning people in, in these, as these characters? For me, it's more, it's more envisioning a, a, a mind, a mind more going into what it's like to be inside that person. So, you know, I have physical descriptions, but they're pretty minimal. Because it's really the interior landscape. That's what's so cool about the movie and why, you know, you, you don't really... I think that a writer who gets ticked off because uh, some character doesn't reflect who he's picturing is a fool because it is a, it's a movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so for me, it was like, oh, that's what Marston looks like, you know? How difficult was it for you, Robert, to cast this film? Because the cast, it is amazing. And I was so happy to see Lachlan Monroe pop up. I always love seeing uh, Lachlan, love Lachlan pop up. He's a stud, man. And, of course, Franco Nero is flawless as Angelo. And let's I, let's I, talk about Franco Nero. Let's take a minute and talk about Let's talk Franco about Franco Nero. texting right now. We're telling each other we love each other. The best part of this film, other than meeting Richard Bausch, is Franco Nero. Every day I still speak to Franco Nero. This man, let's put this in perspective for your audience. He's been in over 300 films. He has worked with everybody from Laurence Olivier to Robert Pattinson. You name the actor or actress. Uh, sorry, that's my Siberian husky comment. Uh, you name the actor and actress of the last uh, 50 years, and Franco has worked with them and has a story about him. I mean, carrying Richard Harris home on his back, drunk in the streets of London. You and and I mean, Richard, am I lying? Every night it was it was dinner with Franco, and the, the greatest raconteur I've heard telling stories. And by the way, uh, always on set, his wisdom always has something kind to say to me, whether it was something emotionally supportive uh, about me as an individual or a suggestion for, for direction 
always kind, always caring, always supportive. They can't just be the, the greatest. Is Frank, Frank Richard, am I exaggerating? No, it's why it was wonderful. I, we were sitting there on set, and he said to me, <laughs> no, I am married to the most beautiful woman in the world. <laughs> I said, good, that's great. I, I think I am. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, no, he was, yeah, he was, even now, he's texting me as I speak. Rebecca, I must speak to you. We're, we're, you know, he's, you know, he's just, he's married to Vanessa Redgrave, of course, and they're just, uh, he's, give, talk to him, if you haven't, give Frank on your show sometime. I mean, he is just, he has so much wisdom to impart, I, and he's still making amazing movies, by the way, and, three a year. And what I love is, and you and Ed do this so beautifully, is you give us a, quite a few full front face face frontals of Franco. So we see life in his yes. face. We see yep. what an old Italian, 70-year-old Italian man in a little village, what he has endured. And it's on yep. his face. It's so expressive. And it. I love the moments that, that you go to those shots and we see yes, that. He's got a face like a like a Roman statue. I mean, mm. my my Richard's wife and my wife—they're in love with him. I mean, look at his face. And then and then, and if for those of your audience who don't know, go go Google Franklin Arrow and see what he looked like when he was thirty years old. I mean, he's so handsome now, but back then he was. He Franco told me here's here's one great story. I'll uh, I'll uh, I'll uh, share with you. I asked him if he'd ever work with Paul Newman, who's my cinematic hero. He said no, but he's tell you a good Paul Newman story. He's at a party right after Camelot, which is when he met Vanessa, and he was the talk of the town. And Paul Newman came up to him and said, uh, Paul, you know, Franco, I want to introduce myself. Now here's Paul Newman, right? Is there a better-looking guy in Hollywood? And, uh, and at the time, and he said, my daughter said, I have to come say hi to you and introduce you. Everybody loves you. Everybody wants to be you, Franco. I mean, so, you know, that's, that's, that's who, who, we're, who we're talking about. But there's a moment at the end of the film, which is pure Franco. Uh, this won't ruin it for your audience. There's a moment when he, he is a, 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 a medallion. Is it St. I don't want to get it wrong. A Jewish kid from New York. It's a St. Christopher's Cross or it's a St. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay. On his, on his neck. And there's a reference to it. That was all Franco. He, he came to me right before that scene. And you know the scene. It's the most emotional. I movie. know. Yep. Okay. And he said to me, Roberto. Uh, I got an idea. My 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 mother, uh, before she died on her deathbed, she gave me this, and I always wear it. I'm gonna do something. I'm gonna do something, and I went, go for it, Franco. And you see, you see what that beautiful moment was. And it is exquisite. I have to ask you, especially for you, Robert. What did you learn about yourself as a filmmaker? making recon that you can now take forward into future films because this is your first feature narrative and i Correct. really want to see more from you and i would Thank love you. to i'd Thank love you. to see you and richard work on something else but we are, I'm, we but are. We're gonna, I'm adapting another one of his novels we 100 percent are uh, i would say this and this is going to sound trite but it's not a joke uh, all the years I spent uh, not doing my schoolwork, but watching movies and watching TV shows, um, it, it all pays off. I would say to your audience, there's one thing I could impart. It's watch movies, you know, don't belittle them. Read, watch movies, and just sort of let all that, let all that um, uh, uh, matriculate into you. Because when I was sitting there on set, I found a lot of the decisions I made uh, were, were not because I went to some five of the film school, because I didn't. It's because just instinctively, I had seen all these films, and I knew in my heart, what I wanted to make and what I loved. And I was fortunate enough to be surrounded by a great group of people who helped me do it. 
And of course, for you, Richard, is there something, some wisdom that you learned about yourself in having this book adapted to film that you will take into consideration with future books should people want to adapt them? Well, I don't know. I don't know how to put that because I don't really think about it that way. I mean, I don't think when I'm writing a story or I'm just sort of trying to dream it up and be convincing. I'd like the natural born liar that I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, do we have it? Well, we have a new uh, book. Alexander, Debbie, before we go, Alexander just texted me. Please give Debbie a great big virtual hug from me. Oh, well, give him one back from me. I miss I him. Shall. I haven't seen I him in, a, in quite a while, so. I will. Thank you so much. Debbie. Oh, gentlemen, thank you so much. This has been a joy. I wish we had another 30 minutes. Me too. Me oh. too. Anytime. <laughs> And that was Robert Port and Richard Bausch talking about Recon. Um, it's a powerful movie. It's emotional. It's insightful. Uh, and it tackles the human condition and the condition of each of these men in a situation that most of us will never know firsthand. And again, Recon is out this week so uh, you know 400 theaters tomorrow and uh when else? and then it expands i think on the 13th so see it see it see it but right now we're going to switch gears and we're going to we're going to welcome andre welsh hello andre hello how's it going it is going how are you doing I'm doing well, thanks. Well. L.A. is finally a, a little bit cold, which is weird. <laughs> <laughs> I know. My toes were extremely cold last night. I actually had to cover them up. Um, but yeah. <laughs> I got to say, one of the things that, that actually warms me up, though, is watching Disrupted. Wow. What? <laughs> this is dark. It's fascinating. It is a lot of your story structure. Uh, it harkens to and reminds me of what Paul Haggis did in Crash, where all mm -hmm. these independent events are happening, but slowly things start intersecting. Uh, and there's a great history to why and how they are intersecting. So I'm curious, describe, tell everybody what this film is about without giving it and no spoilers we don't do spoilers so <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so it's it's basically a dual character story um about a psycho psychopathic venture capitalist uh in the bay area and uh the protagonist is a guy who's uh, been living in san francisco for a couple of decades and um he is being gentrified out of the city, um, basically, by the tech industry um, and everything it represents is kind of squeezing out, you know, all the kind of everyday men um, or, or the everyday man, which is his character. Uh, so he um, so uh, basically it's kind of kind of a dual character story about those two uh, with a thriller uh, murder revenge story um, kind of weaved in. 
you know, and you, and you give them very distinct traits. Um, our protagonist, Pete, beautifully played by Ron Kyle. Uh, just an amazing performance. He's a widower. As we find out, his wife was murdered 30 years earlier. He raised his daughter on his own. He's a recovering alcoholic. Uh, but when you meet him, when you see him, uh, he is the most jovial, nicest guy to the guy in the little corner liquor store uh, around his future son-in-law, around his daughter at the bar that he works in part-time, uh, even with his not-so-nice boss uh, at his main job. But he always is upbeat and you don't think that there's a mean bone or a vindictive bone in his body, but we see that that changes um, as your story develops. And then you bring yeah. <laughs> you <laughs> you bring it. You get Jeffrey Lauer as Harold, our rich sociopath, and the ice. The way he plays Harold is like ice. No emotion, yeah. even towards his wife. And as you watch him, anytime he does interact with people, you see the veneer. I love how you captured this and how Jeff and what Jeffrey brought. We can see this is a veneer. There's something underneath this guy. You know, when he smiles, it's like you're waiting for the face to crack uh, because it's so strained. And it's such it's. You know, you look at uh, the smiles and faces of a lot of these serial killers out there or these mass murderers, and they have a weird, weird look on their face. And Jeffrey manages to capture that. I don't know how he did it, but he did. <laughs> um, you know, how important was the casting, particularly of these two roles, because then you pepper the film with other great performances. Daniel Roebuck, I always love seeing him. Um, yeah, he's, he's always great. Yeah. But I'm curious how you went about casting, because if you didn't get Pete and Harold right, this, isn't, this kind of story is not going to work, because you're not going to buy each of their perspectives. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, first off, I wrote the part uh, of Pete for Ron Kale. Um, I've worked with him for years on uh, different uh, short films and web series in the past. Um, so, so I knew I kind of knew going into it that he could pull it off. Um, you know, with his with his charisma and, and acting skill set. So. Um, so we had that, but we did not know who we were going to get for Harold. So that was a much trickier one for me in terms of casting. And um, we ended up auditioning, I think, like 65 people. And um, Jeff, we just kind of knew, you know, he was he walked in and he was very, you know, just really nice guy. We're all up front. Um, we didn't talk that much, but he just kind of did it. And we were like, whoa, he's Harold. <laughs> so we, <laughs> so he, he just I, I think what impressed us was he um he didn't approach it being too angry or too dramatic. Um he just kinda was this guy who who seemed like the um I always thought one of the themes of his character was he hides in plain sight, like a lot of mm -hmm. sociopaths and psychopaths are very high functioning um people in society that 
you know, are in high places, make a lot of money, um, you know, CEOs of companies. Um, and uh, he just seemed to really nail that aspect um, of it. And then also, you know, he was, I, I bought that he could be um, menacing because he was kind of taller and bigger and a little a little bit more intimidating, mm-hmm. um, you know, on camera. Because I think he's, he, he might be 6'2", 6'3". So, um so yeah, that was that was kind of uh, the main the main uh, thing that Jeff uh, really blew us away with. Well, and you and you mentioned because he is bigger and, and he can be more intimidating, and there are many scenes where he needs to be intimidating. But what's interesting is the methodical control that Jeffrey brings to Harold. He doesn't raise his voice. Um, mm-hmm. Always speaks softly or almost in a mocking kind of soft tone to certain people. But never, yeah. it never, it gets angry. Never elevates his voice, and that's always scary. That's always scary when somebody is, has <laughs> no emotion. That that's that's when that's when the red flags go up, and it's like there's something wrong with this guy. Um, but he plays yeah. it so well, and then you piggyback that because you're also the cinematographer. You piggyback that with some great dutching that make him, in many scenes, look even more imposing over people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and that adds another whole element. The, your camera work is terrific, Andre. Uh, oh, thank you very much. <laughs> and it, That's probably where I'm most critical of my own work. So. <laughs> no, your camera work is excellent, and... I love how you you play with the angles, and you do that throughout the film. So nothing is static, and the the power positions keep shifting, and you do that through the camera, and that adds some layers of ambiguity as to exactly what the heck is going on? And are we shifting allegiances <laughs> and alliances? You know, where? And then you spend a lot of time in a car with not one person, yeah. not just two people, but three people and four people. How did <laughs> every filmmaker out there, every cinematographer is now asking four people in a compact car, how the heck did you pull it off logistically? Uh, it was not not the most fun part of filming the movie, I'll say that. <laughs> um, it was from a standpoint of, you know, uh, we were lucky to have actors that love doing, throwing in some improv, um, so that, you know, um, always makes it a lot more a lot more natural, I think. So I wanted them to kind of, uh, you know, they, they stuck to the script for the most part, but, but they just kind of throw in some, some zingers, especially, especially, uh, uh, Jelani Quinn, Shioki Jelani Quinn, um, who's, uh, you know, amazing at improv. Um, so, but it, it was, it was a little tricky. Um, a lot of the car scenes we did shoot on a DSLR cause it's a, a smaller camera. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were able to kind of mount it and, and have it not be too, too much in the way. Or also the fact that we were driving, actually driving the car, um, you know, you really can't mess around with like a giant camera and you stop fast and then it, you know, gets loose or something. So, 
Um, so yeah, it was, it was definitely tricky. Uh, a lot of, a lot of takes. Um, uh, I think they actually doing the Prius scene where there was four of them. Um, they actually did get pulled over by the police. Uh, oh, because God. one of my headlights was flickering. It was, it was actually my Prius and, uh, the, uh, headlight was flickering. And, uh, so <laughs> pulled over while we were filming. Oh, the scene. My God. so, uh, so that was, that was one, uh, one part of it. But, um, but the, you know everything turned out turned out great. Um, they uh, the actors were total troopers for for being able to you know um, do those scenes so many times. I was watching that. And all I kept thinking is, oh my god, how are they pulling this off? And <laughs> then of course you have your other thing. You've got to worry about your sound. And when you get four people in a car, you're inclined to want to turn on the air conditioner, but you can't turn the air conditioner on. Because of the noise right. that the camera's going to pick up, um, very impressive in-car camera work. I've got to tell you. <laughs> and Thank he, you. And, no, that means a lot to me. Uh, you know, and here again, you even divvy up. You know, you give us different angles within the car too. So you're not doing just like the camera typically may be mounted on the front of a car, just shooting in. You're not giving us just straight right. angles. You're getting sides. You're getting partials. Um, you're creating ambiguity. You're creating some negative space that you play with yeah. as to each individual character's traits. Uh, and I, re yeah. I really like how that comes out and how you do that. Really nicely done. Yeah. Yeah, we almost felt like the cars were characters in themselves. You know, we had a 74 Volvo and then a, a Prius and then a Tesla, and they all kind of, um, you know, have their different um, um, vibes to them, you know, the way who, whoever's driving them and, and uh, how loud they are. Um, the, the Volvo was actually a, a stick. Um, so uh, for some of the flashback scenes, the, the young Pete, um, mm -hmm. We had to teach him how to drive stick. <laughs> oh God! For a few of those shots, so, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was it was tricky. It was a lot of work to do the car stuff for sure. And you do have a lot of car stuff, but those three cars are so distinctive and so defining as to the owners of of, of each vehicle. That you know, they've yeah. it's always been said, you know, that you are what your car is so to speak kind of like you are yeah. you know you are who your dog is but um <laughs> the cars typically you know you want to show off you want to show some affluence they define you and here you have pete who's still driving he has that emotional connection to that 1974 volvo that barely runs and I love how you always capture, whenever he gets in the car, you make it a point to show the key going in to the ignition and him trying to put it in gear and start it. And when he starts it, there's this jubilation. He's like, that a girl, that a girl, you go. And it, <laughs> for somebody that, yeah, has, I... that has owned for decades a 73 Cadillac, uh, 73, uh, 79 Cadillac Coupe de Ville, a 73 oh, yeah. Plymouth Char uh, Satellite, and even a 68 Olds Cutlass, it's like 
you don't want to get rid of them. You love them. They are your children. And when they actually do work, hey, that that's cause for celebration. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And in real life, the Volvo, my dad collects old Volvos, so it's it's one of his old Volvos that barely runs. I mean, he, he does all the work on it himself. Uh, so I can relate because when I was in high school, I drove a 75 Volvo, uh, an orange Volvo that uh, a lot of times did not start. <laughs> I got stranded. You know, quite often in my early days driving in open. So. <laughs> but, you know, to see this grown man and he's so attached to this car and through the flashbacks, we find out why. Um, and that's an important yeah. part of your flashbacks. And you really gauge them uh, and pace them well with I love how all the flashbacks you really go in for the majority of them on close ups. And a couple really nice ECUs that you incorporate. But you really bring us into his mindset. It's very contained. It's very claustrophobic. There was nothing extraneous in those flashbacks. And mm -hmm. that really helps define who Pete is now and what's happening to him. And yeah, and I, I have to give the, the editor a lot of credit. Um, it was it was his idea to kind of spread them around the film a little bit more. Um, originally in the script, we had them all uh, being um, kind of towards the beginning of the film just to give some backstory to Pete. And uh, we found that it just wasn't really working as well. Um, uh, it, it, it seemed better revealing things as the movie went mm -hmm. along. So... Um, so we decided to kind of go with that, and, and I think we all agreed that it turned out better that way. I, th I think it works really wonderfully because it's certain things that happen that trigger his flashbacks, that, t that right. take him back. Rather than everything at the beginning, it's like then there's no development to Pete. But here yeah. we're seeing yeah. each one, something happens and triggers something. And it's all of that triggering. It's like a puzzle. And it starts, or mm -hmm. dominoes, and it starts building and building and building. And we're able to start putting all the pieces together as to what is happening uh, with various things yeah. before everything converges in the third act. And you do a great job of keeping us on tenterhooks as to where this is going. Uh, until we get to that third act. And I have to say, uh, some of the climactic scenes in that gorgeous Lake Tahoe house, that is a gorgeous house. And you really play, it is, yeah. you play with the structure, uh, with the room design quite well in integrating that into the film. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it was... Uh we got very lucky to get a cabin, uh, not only a beautiful cabin in Lake Tahoe, but actually on the lake, um, which is really tough to find. Um, and we were shooting, I think, just about this time of year when we shot those scenes. So it was just kind of on the border of snowing. It was actually pretty miserably cold filming like that because it would, it would go turn from snow to rain. Um, and then, you know, the red camera can't really handle any water. So uh, just dealing with all that. But, um, but yeah, that cabin... Um, you know, it, it just ended up just being, you know, kind of the perfect place to, to have everything converge at mm -hmm. the end. And, and um, you know, we purposely wanted to do something where 
so much of the film takes place in the Bay Area, and you kind of have um, more of the grittiness of cities like Oakland and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, uh, contrasting it with, you know, the beautiful uh, mountains and forest of Lake Tahoe is yeah. so different, yet it's only a three-hour drive. So, um, so yeah, we, we, got, we were very, very um, lucky to get that, Kevin. <laughs> and I love your use of drones. Obviously, you're sh- you were using drones to shoot part of, uh, good portions of this film, but drones become you actually make them characters in the film. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and that I, was another thing we had it in the script with the uh, uh, the uh, drone you know technology that's being pitched in the beginning. So we really wanted to kind of weave that into um, the story and how Pete just can't really relate. The drones and, and this kind of new world of, of technology taking over and, and Harold really is embracing it um, and all the technology you know that he uses for um, for his own his own home and his own cabin mm-hmm. um, so yeah we, we uh, had a couple of different drone pilots that were just really skilled uh, flyers and could just just get amazing shots so um, uh, which is not easy around a, a bunch of pine trees and, uh, and no buildings and everything in San Francisco so so yeah it was uh it was that was definitely a challenge to get uh get those drone shots but we were lucky to find those guys now was it always your intent to direct this film as you were writing it was that always the the uh, end game yes yeah I originally you know I didn't know what kind of budget I would have to make it so I I approached it as uh you know if I got to just shoot it on weekends and and uh finance it myself i'll do it um i knew i was going to have ron kale as my as my lead playing pete um but then um i ended up partnering up with the production company and and um you know we started working on the script together and kind of uh, customizing it more for our resources that we had together mm-hmm. um but yeah i, I was probably going to direct it no matter what i think <laughs> well and with that in mind if you know you've already figured you're going to be directing this and Doing and working as DP as well. Were you thinking of your visual approach in the script stages of this film? That's a good question. I I have uh, you know done cinematography work on other features uh, mm-hmm. where I you know wasn't the director. I was just the the DP. Um, so I had some experience with that. Um, it's always a little different when it, when you can also direct it, so you can really just kind of do whatever you want. Um, but I, I'm much more of a, I don't storyboard, I'm much more of a kind of on-the-fly uh, person. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tend to like natural lighting. Um, one of my favorite directors is, is Steven Soderbergh. I just, I like how his um, stuff just feels more real. Um, uh, you know, Michael Mann films, uh same kind of thing. Um, so, so just um, trying to have things feel a little gritty and real like that, but at the same time, um, I'm just a big fan of, of low angle, kind of more, I guess, brooding shots. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, we did a lot of shots, you know, where we just kind of put the camera on the ground or we'd put the, the lighter or the dolly on the ground and just, just do these really just kind of um, creepy low angle shots. And uh, they don't always work for every scene, so we, we uh, cut those out. But but I try to get them whenever I can. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, because because you're directing and you're also DPing, does that help you um, 
time-wise, in saving time, especially on an indie film, where every day is precious, every hour is precious? Yeah, I think it does, especially on days where we have minimal actors. So if I'm doing scenes where there's just two or three actors um, and there's no extras and it's not a big you know, scene uh, with a lot of lighting. Um, I, I love being the DP, too, because I can just really do as many takes as I want with the actors. I try to get as much coverage as I can because um, I also do um, some editing work, and so I, I kind of approach, um, you know, shooting from an edit- editing perspective, making mm-hmm. sure I have all the shots that I need to, to make it work um, and not spending too much time on some gorgeous dolly shots or, or one or, you know, that um, a lot of people try to do. Um, mm-hmm. But they, they just take so much rehearsal time. They're so tough to do. And a lot of times you go to edit the movie and it's just, it's, it's too slow. And then you can't really cut on it, you know. So um, mm-hmm. I, I tend to, I, I appreciate those shots. I love them, but it's just not really my style. So I, I try to just embrace um, getting getting uh, the coverage that I can. Um, where it, Where it is trickier, is doing scenes where you do have extras, you do have a lot of lighting. Um, those are the days where <laughs> it would have been nice to probably have <laughs> a DP come on um, so I could just focus on the directing and just w- work with the actors because that's where it gets, um, you have to kind of bide your time between, um, you know, setting up technically uh, with the camera and, and the lighting mm-hmm. and all the gear that comes with it. And then also, um, you know, trying to actually direct your actors so that they know, <laughs> Um, what what's uh, what's happening in the scene? So it's it's uh, it's tough when your back's against the wall and, and you only have a couple hours to knock out you know two or three scenes. So we did have some days like that um, that were uh, a little more on the stressful side. <laughs> and when you're shooting at this time of year, um, you've also got bigger light considerations than if you were shooting in the middle of summer, uh, especially when you like yeah. natural light because you're going to lose the light a lot earlier. Right. Right. And there's there's pros and cons to that, because this movie, I think around half of it is at night, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. So um, but we, we shot it kind of off and on in 2017 for the most part. And so there were a few scenes that were shot in the summer that were nighttime scenes, but it doesn't get dark until 930. Right. And so you're just waiting for it to get dark and then you end up shooting till 5 a.m. <laughs> um, and then other other days, of course, you know, where we were shooting in the winter and and you're just just scrambling, you know, trying to get everything before it gets dark. So, so, um, yeah, that's, those are, uh, definitely, um, two things you got to worry about when you're scheduling. <laughs> well, I've got to ask you before, before we run out of time today, I've got to ask you, Andre, this is your first feat narrative feature. So I'm curious, you've mm-hmm. done shorts, you've done episodic. Um, what was the learning curve like for you jumping into a feature film as a writer, a director, and a cinematographer. Yeah, it was, um, <laughs> I would say the toughest part for me was probably post. Um, there were challenges, I think, to, you know, writing the script because, of course, you're collaborating and, and um, you know, uh, we did go through several drafts to, to get it where we we all were, were happy and felt like we could keep it within budget. But, um, you know, I think... Shooting-wise, um, you know, I cast a lot of actors that I'd worked with on previous projects, um, so I had relationships with them. I felt comfortable with them. They, they mm-hmm. knew how I worked. I am a little bit unorthodox in my approach. So 
production wise i felt pretty comfortable but i have to say post is is very uh a lot more daunting um because of just you know just how much goes into it with um not only the editing but also the sound mix and the um score and the color and you know you when you're shooting a film on the red camera the file sizes are huge and and so anyway not to get too technical but there's just there's just a lot of um, a lot of moving pieces with um, with post um, and you know because of um, uh, our budget you know we didn't have a, a giant post department to, to kind of delegate all those all those responsibilities so a mm-hmm. lot of it fell on my plate and I was just kind of learning on the fly so post was definitely the hardest thing for me <laughs> by far well I have to say when it can when it comes to color, you did a beautiful job with the color and the fact that you played with the saturation. Uh, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. It, that I really liked, especially when you're in the car. You really played with with color saturation in the car, and it really mm-hmm. heightened things to make it to give us that surreal sense and that unpredictability and the edge of your seat. Oh my God, what is going to happen? Uh, as you're listening yeah. to the dialogue and seeing the faces of each person in the car. Um, but I love how you played with the color and the saturation and the whole, and the, the slick gloss that you gave everything is really nice. And it really embraced the whole persona of Harold being, you know, being so slick. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, just really nice attention to those details, Andre. Really nice. Thank you so much. Well, yeah, I have to give all the, the credit to my colorist. He, he just, uh, you know, because I told him I, I kind of had some ideas. I, I like playing with it being a little bit more on the cool side of the spectrum mm-hmm. with blues and greens. But I said, you know, have at it. Just do whatever you think looks cool. And, and he really, uh, first time I saw um saw it colored i was i was blown away so it, it looked so much better when he did it than versus my uh, my own color that i have during the temporary uh, cut. so um, that's why you hire a colorist that's why you do it and something that everybody yeah. must remember to do at the indie level budget for your colorist yeah don't forget about the colorist oh it's, it's important <laughs> andre this has been wonderful getting to talk to you about disrupted it comes out what limited theatrical in LA and five other markets on Wednesday, and then on the seventeenth, it's available VOD and digitally. Yep, yep, on the seventeenth, and uh, yeah, it's at uh, in LA the Limely uh, Theater chain, Limely dot com. Oh, terrific, Andre! Thank you so much. I hope you will come back on the show with another project. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. Well, then get to work. Go make something. All right, will do. Thank you so much for having me. Andre, thank you so much. Bye bye. All right, take care. And that was Andre Welsh, writer, director, cinematographer of Disrupted. It's available on the 11th and the 17th on VOD and digital. Recon on the 11th. Uh, Actually, tomorrow on the 10th to honor Veterans Day on the 11th. Um, that is all the time we have today. Next week, who do we have next week? Ah, next week we're talking one of the most hilarious movies I have seen all year, Free Lunch Express. Plus, I think 
you're going to hear my exclusive interview with composer Brian Tyler. And no, he won't be talking about Yellowstone this time. This time we're talking about the beautiful clouds, which is on Disney+. Plus. So, until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Thank <laughs> you.